Welcome to 2420, the bite-sized educational podcast from Tom at Cannaboomers and Kurt Robbins, author of more than 500 articles about the science of hemp and cannabis. We're giving 20 cannabis topics 20 minutes each to help you get smarter about terpenes, cannabinoids, cultivars, and much, much more. And our show starts now. Hey, we're back with episode three, segment three of 2420, our ongoing bonus series with cannabis expert, Kurt Robbins. Hey, Kurt, how are you? I'm doing well, enjoying Los Angeles, getting a lot of riding done, have a lot of exciting projects right now. All right. Well, today we're talking about uh, common cannabis confusion, and there's a lot of confusion out there, but there's some common myths that we're going to knock down today. We're starting out with consumption avenues. Well, there's, you know, obviously smoking has been a very traditional form of consuming cannabis, especially on the underground market over the last century. But there's uh, really a lot of different ways to consume the cannabinoids and terpenes that we've been discussing in this series. And there's primarily four different avenues of ingestion or consumption is what I should say, because ingestion is one of them. It's when we eat the plant in some form. Could be a baked good because cannabinoids are absorbed by fats really well, milk and butter and things. It's uh, not water soluble. So therefore it works great in baked goods. Then of course there's inhalation and that's smoking or vaporizing. We'll talk more about that in a second. Then there's sublingual. Sublingual is different than ingestion because it's absorbed through the mucous membranes and the mucosa under the tongue. And it is a completely different route into the body, but it gets a little confusing because they both go in the mouth, right? And a lot of people are engaging in sublingual absorption, at least to a certain extent, and they're not even aware of it. Now, typically, it's kind of a sloppy model because some will be ingested and go through the stomach and liver but when it goes through the under the tongue, it goes directly into the bloodstream. That's what's unique about this avenue. And it gets a little more complicated than that. And we'll talk about that in a second with onset times. The other avenue is topicals. And this is going to be a really huge market in the future because topicals are already a tremendous market, both for medical care and wellness and also beauty aids. Topicals can come in many different forms, balms, creams, lotions, and one of the newer applications of it is these topical patches or transdermal patches, and they can apply CBD or THC or even, you know, full spectrum formulation. Now, the patches are typical, and topicals overall are typically used for localized treatment. So if you sprain your elbow playing tennis or you're an athlete, or you know, just maybe regular exercise, right? This is cannaboomers after all, and uh, sometimes just a couple miles on the treadmill can give you some aches and pains as you get a little older. Topicals are great for treating things like that. That's my experience. A topical bomb can really help the knee or elbow, and uh, it's odd that it's so localized, but I guess that's a, a trick of it. it. You know, you're absorbing it into your entire body, but it, it sure seems to work locally too. 
Yeah, it does work really well. And some of these cannabinoids are absorbed uh, readily and efficiently into the skin, into the epidermis, and they, they do their thing. So that's a really excellent option. Again, the stereotype is we see the Cheech and Chong or the Scooby-Doo and people smoking joints or bongs, but uh, that's really only a small slice of the options that are available for patients and consumers. So let's talk a little about bioavailability. Now, technically, medically, bioavailability is the amount of a drug or a chemical that is in the bloodstream and considered active. It's doing its thing. And it will eventually be metabolized and, you know, exit the bloodstream and it's only going to have efficacy for so long. In terms of what we're discussing here, let's think of bioavailability as three things, onset of effect, peak effect, and overall duration. And that type, if we're to, to define bioavailability like that, it is different for these different avenues of consumption. So for ingestion, and we've all heard these crazy stories of people getting too much cannabis in their system, especially if they're new to it. And the issue there is that ingestion requires 45 minutes to two hours just for onset. That's not peak and that's not duration. Duration can be six or eight or 10 hours or more, depending on the potency. And again, how versed the consumer is in and eating edibles, if it's their first time and they have six times more than they should, it's probably not going to go very well. And there's a reason for that, too. And this reveals a little about the chemistry of cannabis. Now, again, we've got 200 terpenes, 113 cannabinoids, 20 flavonoids, and they all get there and mix up. But let's just talk about the most famous, THC. When it's digested by the liver, it converts to something, a form of the molecule called delta-11. When it's inhaled, smoked or vaped, it's delta-9. To add confusion to the issue, there's also a delta-8 issue, but we'll talk about that later. Well, it turns out that one study I was reading last week showed that delta-11 is about five times more potent than delta-9. So that's why consumers have to be very careful when they're eating and uh, so often edibles are produced, it's backyard barbecue time, right? It's not labeled, it's, it hasn't gone through a laboratory or a distribution channel, it's on the underground market. And if there's 60 milligrams of THC in a brownie and a new consumer really should be getting five, perhaps 10, you can see where the problems result. Right, and the classic mistake is you eat one brownie and wait a half an hour, an hour, you're seeing no results. So you eat another one and then uh -huh. you're set up for a, a kind of a negative experience. That is exactly how it happens because the consumer is anticipating the efficacy and the onset of smoking or vaping. And it's obviously much different. In fact, smoking or vaping, uh, the effects begin to be felt in approximately two and a half minutes. It enters the lungs where it is transferred directly to the heart and the heart takes it and pumps it directly to the brain because those THC molecules are destined for CB1 receptors in the brain and central nervous system. In fact, if they don't cross the blood-brain barrier, they cannot create that psychotropic, that psychoactivity for which it's so infamous. If you don't mind, can we back up a second to inhalation and talk about the, the different experience between inhaling smoke and inhaling vapor. What do we know about that? 
they look very similar, obviously, and some consumers really don't even think about the difference. Vapor is much healthier. We ha there are known carcinogens in the process of combustion, regardless of what you're burning. So just because you're burning cannabis instead of tobacco doesn't mean that we escape all of those carcinogens. So there, there is some bad that comes with smoking. But often people argue, well, there's a lot of good that comes with smoking, too. So, you know, again, shades, shades of gray that we're getting there. If you're a daily, especially if you're a patient with a weakened immune system, maybe you're fighting cancer or MS or epilepsy, it, you know, a medical professional would always recommend vape. If you're going to go with inhalation, vaporization over combustion. Now, I've also heard that when you vape, you can set your boiling point and access various terpenes. Is there science to support that? Yes, the terpenes have different boiling points. So like, let's say you have a desktop vaporizer and it's temperature adjustable, you're going to be getting a different terpene profile than at a lower temperature. And it's kind of neat. You can start to, if you have an accurate uh, desktop unit, sometimes they cost a few hundred dollars because the lower priced ones, you know, the accuracy is not so great. So you, so you really don't know what you're uh, getting in the end. But you can start to target particular terpenes. And some patients, well, because they have different efficacies, if one is going to stimulate appetite and kill pain, reduce systemic inflammation, if that addresses your particular ailment or condition, then you can start to really dial it in in terms of saying, okay, these are the terpenes that I want to um, optimize, so to speak in the vaporization process. So it gets complicated because it's not only the inherent terpene profile of the product of the cannabis that you're using, but then it's the process by which you quote unquote process it, you know, you, that, that you inject, that you uh, uh, consume it. So uh, what you get in the end, the final bioavailability is often not what we think because it's, it's not necessarily what goes into the machine. I've heard people say that they get a clearer high too when they vape. I don't know if there's any science behind that or if that's just a subjective sort of perspective. Right. And then probably the most common way of vaping is with the, the mobile vape pens, you know, that you just drop in your pocket that have the 510 carts on them. And, uh, you know, there's pros and cons with that too. There are good versions of that and there are bad versions of that that have uh, nasty chemicals in them haven't been tested. There's always going to be good and bad products, so it's definitely buyer beware. I know you were going to address uh, isolates in broad spectrum versus full spectrum. Yeah, if we're talking about consumption here, there's a lot of confusion, I find, even among medical professionals, about the, the different primary forms in which you can consume cannabis, regardless of the consumption avenue. So we have isolates. Now, as their name implies, an isolate is a single molecule and we capture it, so to speak, as purely as we can. And there are 99.9% .9 pure isolates of CBD and THC. And they can be consumed in a variety of ways. They can be smoked, they can be dabbed. We hear about this process of dabbing, which is a form of high temperature vaporization. Okay, so dabbing is a, is a type of vaporization, but if the temperatures are not controlled accurately, dabbing can be a combination of combustion and vaporization. That can happen easily. And that's a very intense sort of 
inhalation. I mean, that's a very uh, high potency experience, right? Uh, yes, I did it with CBD a couple of years ago, and it was very interesting. It was not a powder. It was in the form of a crystal, which always looks very interesting. And, uh, you know, I definitely felt the, uh, the effects of it. I felt like zero pain in my body. Um, not everybody likes dabbing, and especially with now, this was CBD that I was doing, but with THC, dabbing can, can really knock you on your butt. It can be, it's one of the most potent, other than edibles, one of the most potent ways. And again, you're going to get hit in two and a half or three minutes. So uh, sometimes people do a, a couple dabs, and if they're not very versed in it, they got to sit down for a while. So again, people, consumers should be careful with some of these avenues of consumption. Yeah, it sounds overwhelming. So we've got isolates. And without talking about them too much, uh, there's pros and cons with isolates because you're getting just that single molecule. So if that's what the consumer needs for their ailment or their condition, whatever their you know, state of being they're trying to achieve, an isolate might be a good way to go. But often, especially for general wellness, like if we're consuming cannabis as a preventive mechanism and we're not treating a specific disease, broad spectrum and full spectrum products are often preferred. Now, broad spectrum means that it's been filtered, basically. That when the extract or the concentrate was created from the plant, that something was taken out. And typically, it's THC. And this is so we can have a product that is below the 0.3% uh, THC, so it qualifies as legal. It can be sold in all 50 states. And a lot of consumers don't want any psychoactivity. Uh, I don't want the people flying my planes or driving my cars or taking care of my kids or, you know, the air traffic controllers. I don't think I want them getting all looped out on THC. So there's really a good place for broad spectrum products containing trace amounts or no THC on the market. Regardless of the medical efficacy of THC, I think there's a good place for those. Full spectrum as the name implies, is everything from the plant. Now, it should be stressed here that manufacturing and processing techniques typically strip something away. Terpenes and cannabinoids, especially terpenes, are very volatile, delicate molecules. And literally, just the transport of cannabis can, like in a vehicle, you know, with the jostling, can cause these molecules to deteriorate or morph into, you know, a different form in their lifespan. This also brings to mind the whole concept of the entourage effect. All these things are working together, right? And if you have an isolate, you're not, you're not getting any entourage effect. If you believe in the entourage effect, which is technically a theory right now, we need more research. Um, but there is a lot of evidence, both anecdotal and clinical study, uh, pointing toward the validity of it you're getting the most entourage effect benefit with a full spectrum, obviously, but you do get some with the, the broad spectrum. Uh, but, you know, there are people who don't like broad spectrum whatsoever because they say, hey, everything's in the plant for a reason. They really embrace full spectrum or what's sometimes called whole plant formulations. Uh, and they've done their homework. They know there's a lot of medical efficacy in THC. So, Many consumers and medical professionals will use full spectrum exclusively, actually. Okay. And then uh, I think we were going to talk about how long one can store cannabis. Some of us, maybe we're not consuming at a, at a high rate and it sits in, in a jar. How long can you keep it 
and still have that efficacy. Right. The joke here is that, you know, who keeps uh, cannabis sitting around long enough for it to go bad? And all of uh, the daily consumers in the room can, can chuckle and laugh at that. But, you know, many people just uh, consume only when necessary to treat a particular ailment or socially, and it's just uh, a couple times a week. So I actually get this question quite a bit, and some people are shocked to think, what, marijuana goes bad? Really? Well, what happens here is, again, all these molecules are very volatile. And THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, uh, breaks down, it degrades in its life cycle into CBN. And CBN is a cannabinoid that is very much bedtime for bonzo. It's great for insomniacs if they can get it in a decent enough quantity. So if, yeah, if we let, well, we're entering legalization where there was just, uh, you know, there's talk in Canada, there's talk in the United States about distribution channels like we have in other industries, right? And if you go to 7-Eleven and you buy a Pepsi-Cola, uh, it was not made yesterday sat on a shelf, it went through distribution for whatever length of time. So a study was conducted in 1999, and it's really nice because they, uh, it's a multi-year study. And basically in the end, what they found was that the quantity of THC decreases by certain percentages over time. In the first year, the sample lost almost 17% of the THC. Again, most of that converted to CBN. So if you had an uplifting, cerebral, energetic cultivar of cannabis, if it was stored long enough, it could be quite different uh, in its efficacy uh, after all, a, lot of, a lot of that THC degraded to uh, CBN. And I don't want to badmouth CBN. It has its place, too. If you're an insomniac or suffering extreme anxiety, CBN might be one of your best friends in terms of cannabinoids. After two years, the sample... Uh, lost about 27% of its THC. After three years, it lost about 35%. And after four years, again, an unlikely scenario, the rate of, of decline actually decreased a bit, but it was about 41% THC lost after four years of storage. It should be stressed that this is storage at room temperature. And basically, the more you raise it, the higher the degradation. So there's a lot of mitigating factors here. There are, you know, obviously we're in the green rush, so there are companies right now working on technologies and services and products that will, for example, a nitrogen storage system, one is being talked about that could store for about seven years. They're claiming oh, wow. you could have a shelf life of seven years with no loss whatsoever. But in a basic model, I, I don't know the details of what they're doing. You're replacing the oxygen with the nitrogen. You're, you're, the oxygen is going to cause the degradation of the THC. So you want to get the oxygen the heck out of there. Um, now, if you can put something else in there that acts as a preservative, well, all the better. Sure. So then in that instance, they're putting it in a, in a can or an airtight jar or something where oxygen can't get at it, as you say. Yes, and there are products on the market that uh, sometimes they have like a press valve and, and they just push all the air out, out of it. There, you know, there's always going to be a little air left in there. And again, if you're consuming your cannabis you know, fairly quickly over a couple of weeks, 
it, it's not going to be critical. And that's why I like sharing these numbers, finding, you know, science and, and real studies like this. So we don't have to sit around and, you know, dredge up anecdotals. My uncle Bob, he found half an ounce that, you know, from before his divorce, it was old and we smoked it and we all thought it was great. Oh, that's, that's, that's a good story, you know, but <laughs> that doesn't really tell us what's going on here. Uh, here we get to see hard percentages. It's really almost shocking that this research was done uh, all 20 years ago. Well, it definitely makes a difference to have something fresh. And uh, I mean, some people wonder, do you put it in the freezer? Does that help? Or are you probably better just getting it fresh? Exactly. The master cultivators that I've interviewed over the years always tell me fresh is best. And when I've visited uh, farms and, and gardens and gotten something that they had just gotten through the cycle of drying and curing, I have to admit, it's, it's some of the most potent yet enjoyable cannabis I've ever consumed. That's awesome. Well, uh, we ran a little over our 20-minute target, but uh, we can't stop talking about something that has so much value to all of us. So um, thanks, Kurt. That kind of wraps it for this week, but we'll be back uh, soon with episode four. Thank you, Tom. You've been listening to 2420, a special edition podcast series from Cannaboomers and Kurt Robbins. Want to learn more and help grow the cannabis movement? Spread the word and follow us on your favorite podcast platform or at cannaboomers.com.